0: Jesus is coming soon, that's what we just sang together. Although troublesome times may surround us now, we certainly are mindful of that great hope that we entertain, that hope that points us forward to the reality of that eternal abode in heaven. It's so good for each of us to be able to come together today. We're certainly thankful that God has so blessed us and allowed us to assemble. I know there are some with various health issues in life and family members, but aren't we thankful? that God has allowed us the opportunity to offer Him worship today. Realistic Expectations. That's the title I gave to the lesson this morning. And maybe you wonder from Isaiah 53.3 in what way that might be developed. And I hope over the next few moments we each can be reminded about some things that are not only useful but helpful as you and I live the Christian life day by day. This introductory slide is my intent to lay at least an initial plank of foundation. The next slide is really going to lay another one. But we'll begin by observing this. It's certainly fair to say that one's expectations have a great deal to do with one's sense of satisfaction. That is to say, one's sense of accomplishment. If my expectations are set so high that I really am never able to meet them, then it's quite likely I I might feel disappointed... I might feel a bit of despair. I might even feel a failure. The Bible encourages us to have proper expectations, realistic ones, and today's lesson reminds all of us about the life of Jesus and how that He is our prime example when it comes to this. You'll notice about the middle of that slide. The world in which we live often can be so demanding. A world who sets the bar so terribly high, and if we aren't careful... That kind of thinking might even appear in our walk with Christ and lead to some disappointment, to some dissatisfaction. This next slide, as I mentioned, is really the additional plank that I alluded to a moment ago. Isn't it true that you and I are asserted that in the Bible there is a tremendous victory attached to Jesus? And every one of us as Christians, all of those who are faithful to the Lord, can appreciate the promise of passages like these. In 2 Corinthians 2.14, for example, Now, thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of His knowledge by us in every place. Now, Paul said, those in Christ always enjoy victory. In Romans 8, verses 35 and following, Paul said it like this on that occasion, "...who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors to him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's easy to gain a sense from those verses. I, as a Christian, am promised victory. I'm promised an overwhelming essence of success, for nothing can stand between me and Christ. If all that be true, and in addition to that, there are verses like these... Didn't Jesus say, if you've got faith of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be thou plucked up and cast into the sea and it'll be done. Mark chapter 11. May I suggest to you, those verses perhaps bring me to this. If all of these things are true, then why am I feeling despair as a Christian? Why do I feel disappointment on occasion? Why am I not successful at accomplishing that which would appear so clearly to be the will of God? Have you ever felt like that? Honestly, have you ever felt like that? My guess is every one of us probably many times have felt a weight resting upon us much like this. And yet in light of these verses, how can it be so? As I mentioned, realistic expectations... The next slide is going to bring me to make this observation. There are certain things Jesus could not do. I said that the way I meant to say it. There were certain things even Jesus could not do. And may I say, if Jesus couldn't do them, should I expect to be able to do them? If there were certain things Jesus couldn't accomplish, certain things He was unable to bring about... Should I be disappointed if I can't do that? At the top of that slide, you'll notice this. We know that our Savior lived perfectly. He never made a mistake. He never committed a sin. He never spoke something that was inappropriate. He never thought anything inappropriate. He never went anywhere inappropriate. In Hebrews 4.15, it says, We have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but when in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. 1 Peter 2.21 says, There was no guile in his mouth. I say that to say this, This man was perfect. He never erred. He never missed a judgment. He never made a wrong conclusion. Not only that, he knew what was in man. John 2.25 says you didn't have to tell Him what you were thinking. He knew it already. Again, may I say, in light of that degree of knowledge, His ability to read individuals, His capability of understanding regarding the Word of God, He knew it perfectly. And if there were some things He could not do, should we be disappointed if we can't do them either? Let's look at example number one. Jesus couldn't avoid sorrow. He couldn't avoid grief. He couldn't avoid frustration. I said that right. As you and I look at the life of our master, there were times that he felt grief. In John eleven thirty five, 35, Jesus wept. His good friend Lazarus had passed away. And you and I remember on other occasions he extended compassion to families who themselves were in the throes of anguish and grief over the loss of a loved one, or over some other great matter weighing upon them. Jesus felt those things. In addition to that, might I add this one. In Luke nine forty one, even His own disciples, they didn't learn the things that the Lord would have liked them to learn. And when they asked Him a later question, He said, Oh, ye faithless generation, must I tell you this again? Now, maybe you and I can remember. So here was the perfect one, and yet he was a bit disappointed sometimes in others. He again felt the tears and the grief that came with loss. You and I then should appreciate we mustn't beat ourselves too much when we too recognize life is going to bring disappointment our way. It's going to bring moments of grief. It's going to bring moments of frustration. Even the Lord faced it. And if the Lord couldn't live a life without those things, why should we expect to be able to do that? But rather, isn't it true from John 14, 9, that the sorrows of life, even as the Lord addressed Philip on that occasion, he reminded him that although Jesus was God in the flesh, there still was the very present reality that comes with this life and the things it brings. So lesson number one today has been Jesus couldn't avoid sorrow and you and I will not be able to avoid it either. What else could Jesus do? What else about His life perhaps is worthy of reflection? Jesus couldn't go without rest. You and I live in a world and we know it well and the demands can be so high A recent statistic I saw from the Washington Post, which quoted it from a Gallup poll, said that now nearly 20% of full-time workers in our country work in excess of 60 hours a week. Almost 20% of them. Maybe that's some in this audience. Maybe that's you and I. And when you add to that the demands at home, the demands in the family, the demands in community and other places there are times maybe we feel inundated, overwhelmed with the nature and the demands of the work about us. May I say, what about Jesus? I entitled it like this, the Lord couldn't go without rest. And you and I must be mindful of that as well. God fashioned this human body in such a way that it needs an appropriate amount of rest. We can't work 110 hours a week and expect to be healthy. We've got to understand, you see, and even Jesus highlights an example. Would you notice a few of them with me? In Mark 4:38, In the midst of a storm at sea, and the apostles, you may remember, were beside themselves with concern, and the master was asleep. He was resting. His faith was such that it allowed him on that occasion... While others, perhaps on board that ship, were working in various ways, Jesus was obtaining some rest. At the woman at the well, in John chapter 4, you may remember the master had sat down on the well, again, there in the midst of the day, to obtain an amount of rest. It is with regard to those two, I might invite you to reconsider Mark 5, verses 1 and following. Jesus, too, was constantly in, in, in demand. There were those who were constantly wishing to hear Him teach, wishing to see Him do a miracle, wishing to see Him in other ways manifest the greatness of God. And yet, He found time for adequate rest. Jesus couldn't go without rest, and you and I can't either. No wonder at the bottom, you'll notice this question. If the Lord couldn't go without rest, why do we sometimes think we can? In wisdom, we need to appreciate that that's the way God fixed things. What about number three? What else do we find Jesus wasn't able to do? Being misunderstood. Isn't it a fascinating thing to contemplate communication? The ability to talk and to understand what others are saying, and yet there are occasions when, as we converse with others, we find that we've been misunderstood. Now frankly, sometimes that misunderstanding is purposeful, and that is to say someone has an agenda, someone has a particular thing they want us to have said, but we didn't say it. But on the other hand, sometimes misunderstanding is accidental. Someone listened to what we said, but they interpreted it differently than the way we said it or the way intended it to be understood. Sometimes that frustrates us. You know, I've never been like those athletes who are constantly having to give interviews and constantly being in position to state something about a coach or a game. Sometimes they claim they're misunderstood a lot. And sometimes our politicians make that claim. But it's also true sometimes, just as common people, we also feel the same. Think about Jesus, if you would. May I draw your attention to John 2 verse 19. In that verse and those that follow, Jesus, you may remember, was rather early in His public ministry. And He, on that occasion, had made the statement, destroy this temple and in three days I'll build it again. At the time, it seems as if they really struggled with what He said. And in fact, later on in his life, they would actually use that against him, supposing that he was talking about the physical edifice that Herod was building. Forty-six years it's been in building. And he's going to build it in three days? Notice, they took what he said in a different way than what the Lord was teaching because he was talking about his body. He was talking about His resurrection. He was talking about the fact of the crucifixion followed by the fact in three days He'd be raised. To that might we add this example in Mark 14, 58, where again that was later mentioned by false witnesses who purposefully took the Lord's words and construed them against Him. Have you ever had someone to take what you said and ultimately used it against you? If so, Jesus knows exactly where you've been. He felt it too. No wonder we can always go to the Master and recognize that on Him we can lay the concerns and the burdens of our life, resting assured He knows what we're feeling, and He is able to assist us and to help us and to give us the guidance and the insight we need. So far are you gaining the impression certain things the Lord was unable to do. Maybe we shouldn't be too upset when we too are unable to accomplish these things either. What about number four? What else could Jesus not do? Jesus couldn't avoid making enemies. Now maybe this one's obvious, but nonetheless it's so worthwhile. As you and I sometimes live to the best of our capability in harmony with the Word of God, and we strive to do that in a way that would be the perfect and wonderful example of a person dedicated to God. Nonetheless, we may discover someone has something out for us. Someone doesn't appreciate us. Someone has gone to the boss or others and have said things hurtful and deliberately accusative of us. Maybe sometimes even other individuals of whom we would think much differently and much better. But may we remember the most perfect life ever lived also had its enemies. Never did He commit a sin. Never did He speak reproachfully in a deliberately hurtful and purposeful way, and yet He had His enemies. Look at some of these observations. In John 15 verse 18, really only a few hours before He'd be crucified, on that occasion the Lord rather dramatically said that He had His enemies. And He even said it like this, "...the world has hated me." And it will hate you too. Now He was speaking not only about those of His disciples on that occasion, but yea, through the principle of the consideration of time, every one of us know to some extent the meaning of it. The Lord had His enemies. Don't you and I then be alarmed. Don't we be surprised or shocked when we too find those who do not appreciate what we stand for. And they do not take kindly to some of the things we say and some of the stances we take. The Lord had His enemies, and we will have ours as well. I know there are times that's hurtful, and it causes lost sleep, and it brings an element of discomfort to life. But the fact is, as those committed first and foremost to the Lord, and those committed to His way of life, we just have to understand there are going to be those who do not like it. Partly because that brings an element of judgment upon them. They see in us what they don't particularly prefer and like, and therefore they're not going to strongly support it. One other verse I might ask you to consider. In Mark 15, verses 10 and following, wasn't it true on that occasion that Pilate had already made the statement, I find no fault in him. And yet as he made that offer to that crowd, I'll release Barabbas, they would have none of it those Jewish religious leaders, those individuals, they stirred up the crowd, the text says, crying out, crucify Him. The Lord had His enemies. Sometimes we sing songs in our textbook about how that in a sense He was there alone, remember? Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they were prepared to arrest Him, all the apostles fled and left the Lord by Himself. Just as the sheep, you remember, They were scattered, but the shepherd, of course, was by himself. May you and I not allow him to be by himself. He had his enemies, and may you and I in dedication and commitment ever remain true to him. You'll notice on that slide, next up is number five. What else couldn't Jesus do? And therefore, in reasonability, what else may I and may you not be able to accomplish? I've worded it like this. The Lord was the finest preacher this world has ever known. Again, He could read the hearts of men. He knew what people were thinking. And even under His preaching, not everybody repented. Not everybody responded in faith. Not everybody turned to the Lord. If the Lord then endured that, what about you and me today? Will I be successful? Will you be successful in causing everybody to whom we speak to turn to Jesus? Surely we expect that's not going to be a reality. And if we expect it to be so, we're likely to be disappointed. We're likely to be hurt. We're likely to be frustrated. Because even Jesus couldn't get everybody to respond to the Lord. Not everybody to the gospel. Let's look at a few passages to make that plain. In Matthew chapters 5-7, through that fantastic sermon, often known as the Sermon on the Mount, and in that set of passages, the Lord, of course, directly pointed the finger at many activities. But what happened as it ended. You and I remember well. He talked about a wise man, and he talked about a foolish man, and he said that wise man built his house on a rock. The foolish man built on the sand. Now, that was an easy teaching, and at least the idea was readily appreciated. But you'll notice as it ended, it says they were astonished at His teaching. And it went on to say, because He taught with having authority and not like scribes. Our Savior, you see, taught plainly. Did everybody respond? We know they didn't, because some of them nailed Him to a cross. And some of them walked away from Him. I'm reminded of John chapter 6, aren't you? In John 6, verses 61 and following, Jesus, you may remember, had just delivered what without question was a rather powerful sermon. In fact, it was a meaty sermon. And in the course of it, you'll notice many who afterward had recognized and heard with care what He said. It says they turned and they walked away from Him. And then he turned and asked his disciples, "'Will you also go away?' Peter, of course, responded by saying, "'Lord, to whom shall we go?' verse 66. But the point is, there were many who heard him preach that day, and they didn't like it, and they didn't, in fact, tolerate it, and they left. May you and I be wiser than that, but may we, as we appreciate proclaiming the gospel, living a life of dedication and faith, not everybody of whom we drop the nuggets of truth— is going to pick them up and respond the way we'd like. Some maybe will be jealous, others will be envious, others will not care in the slightest. Jesus taught us that too in the parable of the soils, didn't He? Some of that seed fell on wayside soil, and the birds came and took it up before it even had a time to begin to grow. Others fell, of course, in stony ground, and although it did germinate a little and begin to come forth, isn't it true? that when persecution arose and when challenges arose, it of course withered away and became as nothing. Other ground was thorny. Oh, it was infested with thorns. And Jesus later described that as being the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. And when this plant, this good plant, did grow, those thorns choked it out. Of the four soils, only one in four was a good ground, fertile ready to bring forth some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. But isn't it true that lesson five has been this? Jesus couldn't make everybody respond. And you and I won't be able to do it either. We pray about it, we yearn for it, we hope for it, and we strive that men in wisdom may understand the teaching of truly what eternity is all about. So far we've looked at five things that Jesus couldn't do and we shouldn't be upset if we can't do them either. We do make honest effort. We do strive for those ends. Number six will be our last one of the morning. Even His own family. And this one is particularly challenging in a way, isn't it? Because those that are near to us Those that are our own family members, we of of all would wish and hope and like for them to come to appreciate the life that we have in Christ and the hope of eternity of standing rightly in judgment. But yet, what about Jesus? You and I know that there are family members, even in our own family, who don't always appreciate what we stand for. And quite frankly, they've chosen a different path in life And though we have tried to set by example and maybe attempt to set before them the nature of truth, they to this point have not responded in faith. In John chapter 7 verse 5, we have something said about Jesus. Would you note this about His family, His physical family? Now you and I know that Joseph and Mary had several other children. Of course, this text reads like this. For neither did his brethren believe in him. Haven't you always been impressed with the power of that passage? Jesus was the Son of God. Of all people on earth, Mary knew it because she knew she'd never been with a man. And yet she was pregnant with the one that would be the Christ. And don't you know that she and Joseph both understood this? And those other children actually born to Joseph and Mary. But it says they didn't believe in Him. His brothers and sisters didn't believe in Him. If Jesus couldn't so impress upon them, if He couldn't so emphasize to them, if He couldn't so develop things in their heart and mind to be responsive, should we be disappointed if by our, despite our best efforts, we're not able to do it either? Verses I would ask you to consider would be these. In Luke 17, 3, aren't we told repentance is necessary? You and I know there are those in our families, and there are those who are friends, acquaintances, and associates, and sometimes they're not willing to repent. It still is true that repentance is the most difficult, by far, of those things required to please God. I know that we cast a strong spotlight on baptism for good reason. No doubt that's where you contact the blood of Christ, but repentance has got to precede it. People don't like to change more often than not. We're comfortable the way we are. We like things the way we've done them. And if that involves a life of sin, a life of question, a life of foolishness, then that's what many would prefer to keep doing. But Jesus demands we've got to repent. And sometimes our family members don't want to do it, and others that we know don't either. Six things Jesus couldn't do. The conclusion of the sermon then is this. May we have realistic expectations. And by that I mean, as you and I recognize the promise the power, the reward attached to the Word of God, we know that we truly are always victors, but that doesn't mean that we're going to accomplish everything in every way that we would like. We know that we're going to have enemies. We understand that there are going to be those who will not repent despite our best efforts to teach them. There are going to be those, even in our own family members, who will not feel toward the Word of God as we do. There will be individuals, again, who perhaps have been misunderstood about the character of disappointment, grief, frustration, and work. Those first things are going to come, but may you and I always make sure to understand the need for rest. As this lesson draws to its conclusion this morning, I hope each of us have been reminded about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and in His perfection, these things were still reality. Are you a committed and faithful Christian this morning? Are you living a life of which God is very pleased and proud to call you His son or daughter? Because after all, we are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. How's your faith this morning? That faith, I presume, is such that it's vibrant. It's enthusiastic. It's a faith that in fact allows you to recognize that in Christ you've been forgiven of your sins, and You can stand justified and hold before God. For if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. 1 John 1.7 But maybe there's someone in this audience, one or more individuals, who has reached a point in life when maybe you've never obeyed the gospel, but you've come to realize how desperately you need to. Eternity hangs in the balance, and you're not ready for it. You realize the one and only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. You've got to follow the Lamb, whithersoever He goes, Revelation 14, 4. If this very day that would be your situation, then you realize you must believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God. And you must repent of your sins, and you must confess His name as the Son of God, and you must be baptized What a joyous moment it is to witness a baptism. Somebody who has made the choice to commit his or her life to Jesus Christ. Today, if you have become a Christian, may I ask the same question, how is your faith? Is that faith still vibrant? Is it still living? Is it still enthusiastic? Or is it dead? If your faith is dead, don't allow it to remain that way. Because in Hebrews chapter 6, those with that kind of faith are said to perish. They're said to be lost. And if your faith is in that character today, why not come back to the Lord? He loves you. He still shed His blood for you. Though at this point you have chosen to distance yourself from Him, it isn't His fault, it's yours. But you know He's willing to forgive. He's willing to forget everything you've done. But you've got to believe in Him. You've got to believe He'll forgive, and you've got to repent of those things and confess them. And if you'll do that, He will be happy, in fact, delighted to welcome you back home. This morning, we offer this time of encouragement, this time of invitation. Realistic expectations, that's been our goal. And today, it's realistic for you to obey. God won't ask you to do something you can't do. This song of encouragement has been selected. If anyone in the audience would wish to come, let today be the day and do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.